Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. When you go to court, the defendant, there's two things he or she is expecting, and that's fairness and justice. And in his case, he got neither. The black and white photos of George Stenney Jr. are not easy to look at. A 14-year-old boy in a striped shirt with a number 260 on the front. He's not smiling. In one, he's looking at the camera, his head cocked just slightly. The other photo is taken from the side. The only images of a teenager whose life is coming to an end soon. George Stenney Jr. lived with his family in Alkaloo, South Carolina. It's in Clarendon County. And back in the spring of 1944, the town was heavily segregated with an almost even number of black and white citizens. On the day that changed everything for George and his family, he was outside with his brother when two young girls aged 7 and 11 came along. What happened next is a story folks who've lived in Alkaloo for a long time know well. It's a story that historian George Frierson heard about when he was young, growing up in the same town where George Stenney Jr. lived years earlier. I um, was born in Alkaloo, and this case was talked about all my life because I was born eight and a half years after this happened, and I never knew his name. Um, the black elders in the community say, now, just be careful how you interact with whites because we don't want the same thing happen to you that happened to that little black boy. And so that's how he was referred to. George Frierson didn't think too much about George Stenney's story in the years that followed. Not until much later, after serving in the military and starting a family, did he return to what happened to George Stenney Jr. Back in the early 2000s, I was reminded of this case. And I chose um, to look into it further. And as I did, I said, there's no way this can stand. So I started... I guess my walk towards seeing what I could do to bring enlightenment and justice to this case. So back to that day in 1944 in Alkaloo, South Carolina, when two young girls came down the road and into George Stenney's life. Well, on Friday, March the 24th of 1944, two young girls, uh, 11-year-old Betty June Binnaker and 7-year-old Mary Emma Timms, were in the black community of Alkaloo, which was kind of strange, looking for flowers or maypops or whatever it was. And they came into contact with Mr. George Stenney Jr. and his youngest sister, Amy Lou Stenney. Uh, they were asked whether they knew of any place where these flowers or maypops could be found, and they answered they didn't know. So the girls continued. Um, that night, there was an alarm that went out in the community that these young girls had not returned home, and a search ensued, and 
Mr. George Stinney Sr. was a part of that search. Some even say that Mr. George Stinney Jr. was also, but I can't ascertain that. But I know Mr. George Stinney Sr., who was a worker at the mill where all the mill workers got out and went looking for the girls, and they searched unsuccessfully that Friday night. And early that Saturday morning, uh, their bodies were found, and they were in a shallow ditch of muddy water with a bicycle frame and tire literally holding them down. The scene was horrific. Two young girls left in a watery ditch, bludgeoned to death. The location was, in fact, not far from George Stenny Jr.'s home, and police soon learned that Stenny and the girls had run into each other not long before the girls vanished. This all happened more than 75 years ago, and today, records about the case and the investigation are scant. George Frierson knows this firsthand. He's tried to find whatever he can about the case. Uh, we looked at everything that I could find physically after having requested this information for years on years. I found out that allegedly the records had either been destroyed or uh, misplaced. What we do know is that George Stenny Jr. was arrested and then interrogated by police about the murders. George's sister, Amy Ruffner, remembered the last time she saw George and his brother, Johnny, when police pulled up to their home, went in the back door and put George and his brother in handcuffs. We also know that George Jr. was questioned by police without an attorney and without his parents in the room. And after hours of questioning, he confessed. His brother was released and George Stenny Jr. was locked up, his fate in the hands of a jury. George Stenny Jr.'s trial at the Clarendon County Courthouse started at 2.30 in the afternoon of April 24, 1944. Well, he was assigned two attorneys, and um, I won't go into the specifics of them, but one of them was a tax attorney and the other one was a dying magistrate, so they were pitted against a seasoned solicitor. And I would just like to say if, when you start out, if you can't win, regardless of what you do, then it's unfair from the beginning. And so in the starting of the proceedings of that trial, there was no way a tax attorney and a dying magistrate could win. So it was unfair from the beginning. Less than three hours after the start of the trial, the jury, made up of 12 white men, retired for 10 minutes. Ten minutes later, they came back with a verdict of guilty with no recommendation for mercy. And the judge, 25 minutes later, sentenced him to die. In other words, George Steady Jr. was tried and convicted all on the same day, in a matter of hours. On June 16, 1944, 83 days after the bodies of the girls were discovered, 14-year-old George Steady Jr., weighing less than 100 pounds and just over 5 feet, was led from his cell to the electric chair. And the electric chair, as we know, was a giant result for adults. Um, this child was five foot one, ninety-five pounds. Uh, he was too small for everything. The apparatuses that were supposed to be connected to his body during the process, everything was too big. And when he put that mask over his face and that cap on his head and this electrode on his legs, they were too big. And so when the first um, shot of 2,400 volts went to his body, uh, the force of the shot, I knocked the mass off his face. 
and those 50 people who came from Clarendon County to witness him die, I thank the Lord that they saw him die in real, real time. And afterwards, they didn't want to talk about it. I always ask people, have you ever seen somebody take their last breath? And if you have never seen that, there's nothing that you want to witness unless you're sick in the mind. Steny's sister said after the arrest and execution, the family was run out of town. And George Steny never saw his family again. Decades went by, and Alkaloo residents would hear about George Steny and the murder of the girls. But many doubted the results of the trial and questioned the interrogation without an attorney or his parents, the confession of a 14-year-old boy in a room with uniformed officers. Historian George Frierson was among those who questioned what he'd heard all those years. And in the early 2000s, he started searching for documents, records, anything that could help unravel what really happened in the spring of 1944. I went here and there, any place I could find anything that was relevant to the case. As I say, the records were either destroyed or or hidden. And so we had to almost recreate the case. And I, when I say we, there were people that were supporting my efforts. They didn't know totally what I was doing. But they say, as long as you're doing the right thing, we got your back. And there was 15 other citizens of my community. We called them a new day. And they say, we got your back. With a group of local residents helping out, Frierson eventually turned his research over to a local reporter. And Steny's story was told in a local newspaper. And suddenly, the case took on a new life. And there was so much of calls coming into my house on my landline phone that I could not get a call out. Uh, everybody wanted to represent me in this case. With members of George Steny's family backing the group, a hearing was scheduled to review the conviction and determine if Stenny had been tried unfairly. On Tuesday, January the 21st, and Wednesday, January the 23rd of 2014, there was a rehearing, a retrial, or whatever you want to call it, at the Sumter County Judicial Complex on looking at that case. And as I say, Judge Common T. Mullen was assigned as a circuit court judge to hear that case. And uh, there was interest from all over the country. We had news reporters from all over the country there. Uh, Everybody wanted to talk to me, but it was never about me. It was always about Mr. Stenny. It would be almost a year, in December 2014, that George Frierson and all those who had taken up the fight to clear Stenny's name would hear the news. On Tuesday, December 16, 2014, Circuit Court Judge... Common T. Mullen actually vacated the conviction of Mr. George Stanley Jr. Frierson, who'd been working on other projects at the time and wasn't looking at his phone messages, when he finally did, realized what had happened. And then I put on my phone and my voicemails were overloaded. No more room for voicemails. My text messages was uh, full. No more room for text messages. And I went to a quiet place. And I remembered who had strengthened me and led me in that way. And I thank God for allowing me because there was one thing I asked God for. I said, Lord, just let me live to see. That was the only thing I wanted. And he did that. In her ruling, Judge Carmen Mullen said she found, quote, fundamental constitutional violations of due process. I don't have a murder weapon. I don't have bloody clothes. I don't have a written confession. 
I have nothing, end quote. In reaching her decision, she made clear that she wasn't actually making a judgment on the guilt or innocence of George Stenny Jr. She went on to say, quote, We don't know whether or not he did it, but that wasn't the issue. It was whether or not his constitutional rights were preserved, and they weren't, and that was clear. There was no real investigation done by the police, and it was just assumed that either George Stenny or George Stenny and his brother committed this offense. And continuing, she said, It's got to be fair, it's got to be just, or it can't be relied upon. And when people have distrust for the system, then obviously we have complete breakdown of social order. One of the most shocking things in the George Stenny case is that he was tried by a jury of 12 white men. That certainly is not a jury of his peers, and that certainly was not a cross-section of Clarendon County at the time. There was half African-American, half white, and his family was not even allowed in the courtroom. Judge Mullen also wrote that Stenny didn't get adequate representation, saying his attorney did little to defend him and asked few cross-examination questions. She also said there was never an effort made to move the location of the trial, despite the fact that much of the town was angry over the deaths and that the jury was most likely not impartial. For Stenny's advocates, like George Frierson, the decision was a victory and held up their belief that the teenager had been forced to confess, didn't have proper counsel, and wasn't allowed to have his parents around when he was questioned. I hope that no other kid in America what, what state they live in would have to not go through this again. That there will be physical evidence before they execute another person. When a memorial was put up in George Stenny's name, George Frierson, relatives, and George Stenny Jr.'s supporters came out to honor and remember the teenager, a 14-year-old boy from another time. We know we have to forgive the state for what happened. We can't bring him back for what happened. But we feel that an apology would help mend our hearts to let us know that the state is behind us, that they didn't just ignore this case. Um, keeping his memory alive is kind of like showing um, that South Carolina has made a mistake and that these mistakes are still being made, so we have to realize them and kind of go back and look at how people are convicted and profiled. The memorial in Stenny's name was something that George Frierson knew needed to happen. I thought about something actually to put a memorial to his honor and his legacy because he was 14 years old, never had the opportunity to graduate from high school, to get married, to do anything, really. And the state of South Carolina took away those opportunities for him. So I was very indignant that the state where I was born <laughs> I took it upon themselves to take away an opportunity for my child. And I guess I'm still kind of mellowing on that. But anyway, there was a stone put in It's We call it the Hope Stone. Is that 6812 the Highway? Uh, one of my, uh, I'm going to say, one of my supporters, I gave the land to have it put there, and it's been there since June the 13th. We put it there on June, Friday, June the 13th. And as it was being put there, to be dedicated the following day, uh, two white gentlemen pulled up and took pictures of it and admired the beauty of that stone. Uh, and it is a beautiful stone. So we, um, we're just thankful that God allowed me to put my hand to something and allowed me to follow through with it and see it to the end. George Stenny Jr.'s name is still being held up because we are talking about him. And I tell people, the only thing you truly own is your name. It follows you in life and death. 
The brutal murders of 11-year-old Betty Binnaker and 7-year-old Mary Emmy Thames remains unsolved. Although after all this time, George Frierson might have another story. It's one he's decided not to tell, at least in any detail. The family shared with me that there was a bedside confession. I never brought that into any of the research because you could not confirm that any other way, could not be corroborated in any other way. But they told me who the bedside, or the person that was bedridden at, asked for a bedside confession. And I looked him up, too. Now, it was always said in the black community who the perpetrator was. We always knew who that was, who was said to be. But again, I never called his name because he was never arrested, charged, and or convicted. But less than two and a half years after the child was executed, he checked out, too. <laughs> so, again, and the sheriff at that time who said he heard the child confession confessed, he lost his ability to talk, and he died of throat cancer. And one other person who said he heard the child confess, he died in a horrible accident. And another one who said he heard the child confess, I witnessed personally his funeral back in September of 2012 as it passed by. So, no, there were others brought to justice, maybe not in the high side of man, but God took care of that because he has the last say. Now, these people that were, I guess, his antagonists, if I could use that term, uh, they may have lived our lives, but they are gone and forgotten. It's likely that we'll never know for certain what happened to the two little girls in South Carolina in March 1944. We'll never know why they were brutally killed and left in a creek bed. Never find out who did it. But for George Frierson, victory means knowing George Stenny will never be forgotten. It, it, it is a story worth telling. And so um, when I look at his face, well, my name is George also. And then I look at the, the, the face of George Floyd, whose death had brought a revolution or whatever you want to call it around the world. I, I look at God having the last say at all times. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. All right, I'm here with Darcy Strickland. She is the content manager and senior journalist at WLTX in South Carolina. Darcy, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. You know, I have to say uh, so many aspects of this case are are tough to digest, but that photo of George Stinney Jr., uh, you know, with prison stripes on and a number on his chest and just the expression on his face, it's it's so heartbreaking. I feel the exact same way. You know, I've been working on this story um, here and there for several several years, especially um, when his conviction was overturned in 2014. And as a parent, I have twin daughters who are 13, and my oldest daughter is 15. And just to see the look on his face and to understand that in that moment, he did not even understand what was happening. And not even to be so graphic as to describe the way that this child was executed. He was too small 
for the electric chair. So he sat on a Bible. And so when they put the device and the cape over his face, his face was too small. And so during the process, the cape falls off of his face and you see the tears coming down his face. South Carolina executed a child and it took less than two hours for a jury to make that decision. It is one of the darkest parts of the history of the state. To look at it through the lens of what we understand today, um, it is, again, one of the darkest moments in South Carolina history. And for a story that is so dark, as you say, and difficult to listen to and to hear, it has an ending that is uplifting. And to hear George Frierson talk about it and other supporters who got behind this cause and were able to get this case into a courtroom some 70 years or so after his execution, it's, it's, it has, if, if we can call it, a, a good ending in some respect. It does. And in 2014 is when I uh, started working on this story again, and that's when the acquittal process started and, and it was overturned for him. And just to know that there were people across the country who were engaged in wanting to make sure that even though it took seven decades that this young man's name was cleared, it was important for them to see that happened. And it is encouraging to know that it was an opportunity for South Carolina to right a wrong. And certainly at this time in our country's evolution and discussions of race and racism, it's a poignant story and one that needs to be shared, I think. It absolutely is. When we think about police brutality and how uh, people are looking at it through a different lens today, it's really not that different than it was 70 years ago. We understand today that um, a disproportionate number of African-American young men are imprisoned. And much like George Stinney, they don't have necessarily the type of defense that they should have. And the outcome is oftentimes worse than it would be for anyone else. Uh, and so in looking at the history of what has happened to black men um, throughout this country uh, for hundreds of years, it is important that we don't forget the George Stinneys of the world and, and that he ultimately gave his life. He was killed. He was murdered by the state of South Carolina over something that many people, even today, still believe he was not responsible for. And it's even more important to understand that Betty June Benneker and Mary Emma Thames, we may never know who actually murdered those girls. Yeah, you know, I was going to mention that we we focus on George Stenney Jr. in this story because of, you know, for obvious reasons. But, yeah, we have two little girls who were murdered, and, you know, we don't know who did it now. And like you say, we probably never will. So three juveniles who, you know, lost their lives all wrapped up in this story. Right. Three families who were forever changed because of this one incident. Darcy, any final thoughts about George Tenney Jr. and your coverage of this over the years, anything that sticks out in particular outside of what we've talked about? Looking back over the George Stinney case gives me hope uh, that there are opportunities for wrongful convictions to be overturned. Um, I don't know anyone who's ever been in this situation, but as a journalist and studying his case uh, and understanding how 
horribly wrong this went for him, it does open our eyes and make us more aware of the fact that it does still happen today. Um, And hopefully it doesn't take seven decades for anyone else who has been wrongfully convicted to have someone step forward and say, hey, let's look at this. Let's make this right. All right, Darcy Strickland at WLTX in South Carolina talking to us about this case. Thanks so much for for talking to us. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back next week with a new case and a new story here on True Crime Chronicles. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson.